Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Mathematics. Today's guest is Vicki Neal, the author of Closing the Gap, The Quest to Understand Prime Numbers. This book details one of the most exciting developments to happen in the last few years in mathematics, the new approach to the twin primes conjecture. The story involves mathematicians from five different centuries in probably every continent except Antarctica. Vicki does a great job of telling not only what the problem is and how work on it has proceeded, but also how mathematical research has evolved given the resources available in the 21st century. Vicki, welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. It's great to be here. Vicki, you start the book with an analogy between mountain climbing and mathematical research, which I think our listeners would enjoy. Yes, I, I guess if you're climbing a rock face that nobody has ever been up before, you just don't know what the route up is going to be. You don't know whether you've got all the right kit with you, all of those kinds of things. So uh, for a mathematician doing research, it's a lot like that. You're tackling a problem, but you're not quite sure what tools you might need to solve it, what ideas might come into play. Once somebody else has solved it, it's kind of straightforward to follow the route that they've solved or maybe find another route. As with rock climbing, when you know somebody's been up, you can follow how they do it. But being that pioneer uh, is exciting, but also you've just got no idea how it's going to go. At least you're not going to, when you fall off, it's not fatal. Exactly. Yeah, it's much safer. Mathematics is much safer than rock climbing. Yeah. Uh, um, in, uh, interestingly enough, one of my uh, colleagues and an office mate was an individual named John Backer, whose son was the world's best free rock climber until he fell off and and died, which was very unfortunate. But my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, um, getting back to closing the gap, the book is about prime numbers. What is a prime number, and why are they so important? So prime numbers are, are like the indivisible numbers. They're the building blocks from which we make other numbers. So a, a prime number is a whole number bigger than one whose only factors are one in itself. So seven is an example of a prime number. I could divide it exactly by one or by seven, but not by anything else. Whereas six, I could divide by two and three as well. And prime numbers just turn out to be utterly fundamental in mathematics because they're the building blocks, because we can make any whole number we like bigger than one by multiplying together these prime numbers. And so it turns out that they're really important in mathematics and they're important beyond mathematics as well. They have these applications. But for me, they're also just really intriguing because because they're so fundamental and because we learn about them when we're quite young at school, kind of think, well, how hard can it be? And it turns out that they're really hard. Every every time you think you understand what's going on with prime numbers, it turns out to be a bit more subtle. So even questions that seem quite simple to ask about prime numbers can turn out to be really hard to, for mathematicians to solve. And I find that fascinating. Well, I'm going to ask a question that I've always wanted wanted to know because I've taught about prime numbers in various courses, but one is not classified as a prime, and I've always been curious why. Yeah, I often have this conversation with students because they're kind of trying to read the definition and check, well, it's only got one factor, not two, and how does that work and so on. And I think the really important thing to remember is that as mathematicians, it's part of our job to make the definitions. We don't get handed the definitions on stone tablets. We make the definitions, and it's our job to make definitions that lead to good mathematics. So uh, it turns out that one of the really fascinating properties of prime numbers is not only are they the building blocks and we can make every number from them, but we can make every number from them in just one way. So if I pick like 12, I can write that as two times two times three and two and three prime numbers. So that's like it's prime factorization. And I could maybe write the factors in a different order and say two times three times two, but that, that's still basically the same prime factorization. There is only one way of doing it. We're opposite sides of the Atlantic right now. However we do it, we're still going to have to come up with the same set of prime numbers. If one, if we allowed one to be a prime, technically I could factorize 
factorize 12 as two times two times three times one times one times one and that would somehow be a different factorization which which is really silly it's it would break that beautiful property of that uniqueness of prime factorization so it just turns out to be a better definition a more convenient definition to rule out one as a prime number I'm going to have to remember that if I ever teach the class again. Um, <laughs> that Well, one of the first things that we learned about prime numbers, and we learned it long ago, was that there are infinitely many primes. How do we know that? Yeah, this goes way back to the ancient Greeks, so 2,000 years or something. And it's a really important question because... If you imagine the sort of universe where there's a biggest prime number, there are only finitely many primes. From some point on, every number in the world is not prime. That would be a very different universe from one where there is no largest prime number. So knowing how many primes there are, knowing that there is no biggest, that there are infinitely many is really important. And... Um, the great mathematician Euclid wrote about this. So Euclid is famous for writing about geometry. We call it Euclidean geometry in his honor, the properties of circles and similar triangles and right angle triangles and all that, that kind of stuff. But he also wrote about number theory and he gave this beautiful proof that there are infinitely many prime numbers. So I, I could talk you through that if you like. Um, okay, uh, because it's a ver fairly simple proof. Why don't you talk me through it and then we'll get on to other things, but no more proofs after that. No, no, I'll, I'll keep it brief, but this is one of my favorite proofs. Okay. So, so Euclid's plan is we want to show there are infinitely many primes. There's no biggest prime number. So his idea is let's do a thought experiment. Let's imagine we're in a parallel universe where there are only finitely many primes. There's a biggest prime number. And what we're going to do is show that that leads to an absurdity, an impossibility. So what we do is we take a very large piece of paper and on it, for our thought experiment, we write all the primes in the world. So we're imagining there's a biggest prime number. So our list starts 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, so on. All the prime numbers in the world on this piece of paper. And then Euclid's amazing idea is that we take all of the primes on this piece of paper and multiply them together, which gives us some very large number. Who knows what it is? It doesn't matter. And then we add one. So we take all the primes, multiply them together, and then add one. This very large number must be divisible by a prime number because it, every number is. Either it's prime itself or it's divisible by a smaller prime number. But it's not divisible by any of the primes on our piece of paper. We can go through and check. Because we multiplied them all together and then we added one, this number is going to leave remainder one when we divide by any of the primes on our list. And so this number has to be divisible by a prime. And yet it's not divisible by any of the primes on this on our list. So we reach this impossibility. We call it a contradiction in maths. And so that kind of hypothetical universe where there are finitely many primes, where there's a biggest prime number, can't exist. And that proves that there are infinitely many primes. So it, it takes a bit of a, getting your head around, but it's such an amazing argument and such an old argument as well. And also one of the nice things about it is that it illustrates that in mathematics uh, that there are absolute truths in mathematics that we can prove. And it even goes beyond scientific proof because science gets revised, but mathematics generally doesn't. That's right. So I, I am utterly 100% certain that there are infinitely many primes because of this proof. If I just ask my computer, well, can you keep thinking of big prime numbers? My computer will keep thinking of big prime numbers. That's sort of encouraging that the supply doesn't seem to be running out, but that doesn't prove it, whereas Euclid's argument gives us that absolute certainty. I totally agree with you about that being really important. Wonderful. Why do we suspect that as numbers get larger, there are fewer primes? Well, so we can we can do some uh, evidence gathering um, these days using computers. When mathematicians started working on this seriously in the, the 18th and 19th century, they were using it with lists of primes that have been generated by hand. And it looks as though they kind of get more spread out. And intuitively, that makes sense. If I give you some enormous number, it's really hard for it to be prime because there are lots of smaller numbers that might divide into it. It's very easy for seven to be prime because there aren't many smaller numbers that could be factors. If I give you a huge number, there are lots of numbers that might stop it being prime. So it kind of makes sense that it's hard for large numbers to be prime. We expect them somehow to get more spread out. And then right at the end of the 19th century really a kind of highlight of 19th century mathematics. Two mathematicians, Adamar and de la Vallée-Poussin, independently proved the prime number theorem. And you could tell from its importance it is. And the prime number theorem gives us a way of counting the number of primes, well, an estimate for the number of primes up to a million or a billion or whatever your favourite number is. And we can read off from that that on average the primes are getting more spread out. But... 
as I said, every time you think you understand the primes, it's a bit more subtle than that. It is true that on average they're getting more spread out, but then we find these little clusters of primes that are really close together. So just the numbers up to 100, you start getting these big gaps. So 89 and 97 are both prime. There are no primes in between, this big gap. But then 101 and 103 and 107 and 109, they're all prime. It's like this little cluster of four prime numbers really close together. So, so it's kind of complicated. And now we come to your book um, because we've got some background now. So what are twin primes and what is the twin prime? Yeah, so twin primes are pairs of prime numbers that just differ by two. So, for example, three and five are both prime. They differ by two or five and seven or 11 and 13 or 107 and 109. Two prime numbers where the gap is just two. And we know that there are infinitely many prime numbers. Euclid proved that for us such a long time ago. The question is, are there infinitely many pairs of twin primes? And the twin primes... And that's a twin prime... Yeah, go ahead. The, the twin primes conjecture predicts that there are infinitely many pairs of twin primes. So a conjecture is a statement that we think is true, but we don't yet have proof. We don't have that absolute certainty. We haven't disproved it either. So the prediction is that there are infinitely many pairs of these twin primes that differ just by two, even though on average the primes are getting more spread out, no matter how far down the number line you go, you can find these primes that are really close together. Okay, who is Yitang Zhang, and what was his recent contribution to the twin primes conjecture, and how does that relate to the book's title of Closing the Gap? Yeah, so Zhang is, in a sense, where this book starts. So the twin primes conjecture is old. I, I don't know exactly how old. It's hard to tell who first wrote it down, but it's certainly a century is old. Potentially, it goes right back to the Greeks. And really, there wasn't very much progress on it, although it seems like a simple question. It turns out that it's very hard. And the excitement came in 2013 when Yi Tang managed to make a breakthrough on this problem. So he hasn't proved the twin primes conjecture, but what Zhang managed to prove is that there are infinitely many pairs of primes where the gap between those two prime numbers is less than or equal to 70 million. And when the goal is trying to prove the twin primes conjecture that there are these pairs of primes where the gap is just two, 70 million feels like a long way off. But the mathematical community was super excited about this breakthrough because really it was the first time anybody had got a, a bound like that, had managed to prove a theorem of that of that type. And while 70 million is a lot bigger than two, it's much better than infinity. So... Zhang wasn't a famous expert in the area. He didn't have lots of publications in number theory or anything like that. He'd really been working very much by himself. He'd read the literature in the area. He knew the work of the experts. And it was by taking their ideas, their approach, and overcoming some of the technical difficulties, obstacles that had appeared to be in the way, he managed to make this breakthrough. So the experts were checking his work to make sure it was okay. But then everybody was wondering, well, can we make this, bring this 70 million down? So, so the book is called Closing the Gap because that gap, Zhang shows the gap, you can have that gap being less than or equal to 70 million. We'd like to bring that gap down to two. So after Zhang's work came out, lots of other mathematicians started joining in saying, well, how can I adapt Zhang's ideas? It became clear that there were places where he hadn't absolutely optimized it, I think, in the interest of clarity as much as anything else to make sure people could follow his argument. But other people were saying, well, look, I can I can start to bring this number down. Um, you know, one of the things about Yitang Zhang is that the stories like his have sort of happened in the past in mathematics. And what does this story tell us about the world of mathematical research? I think one of the things that's really interesting about this recent work on the twin primes conjectures since Zhang's breakthrough in 2013 is the contrast of ways that it's been happening. So Zhang was really working in isolation. He had not found it easy to get an academic job. He hadn't published lots in the area, as I say, and really sort of fits with that mental image that I think we often have of mathematicians as very solitary, um, as this sort of lone genius figure, suddenly out of nowhere there's this breakthrough. But following Zhang's um, breakthrough, other mathematicians started collaborating on trying to improve this bound. So uh, rather than everybody just working by themselves, there was this kind of online 
collaboration called a polymath collaboration, the type that was started a few years earlier. So it's all on blogs, it's all on wikis, it's all in public. It's very fast paced. It's very open in that anybody who can follow the argument can join in. You don't have to have got a job in a university or have a PhD in maths or whatever. If, as, as long as you uh, can follow the conversation, you can join in. And that contrasts very starkly with that lone genius kind of image. It's a very different style of working. So one of the things I like about this story is that we get these insights into different ways in which one can be a successful mathematician. Yes, you might be somebody who likes working by yourself, beavering away in kind of isolation and obscurity for a long time, and then maybe you make this stellar breakthrough. You might be somebody who prefers to discuss with others, share ideas, and see where you can get to together. Um, one of the things that you discuss in conjunction with the twin prime conjecture is the Goldbach conjecture. What's that and what does the Goldbach conjecture and the twin primes conjecture have in common, other than being conjectures? <laughs> yeah, so I guess the Goldbach conjecture and the twin primes conjecture are two of the most famous unsolved problems about prime numbers because they both have this quality of not being too hard to understand but seemingly being very hard to solve. So the Goldbach conjecture predicts that we can write every even number bigger than four as a sum of two prime numbers. So, for example, 10 is an even number, it's a multiple of two, and I can write it as three plus seven, and three and seven are both prime numbers. And you try this for some small numbers, and it seems like every even number is a sum of two or prime numbers. And the conjecture is that that's true for every even number. Um, but, again, we don't know how to prove that right now. And... It seems that somehow the Goldbach conjecture and the Twin Primes conjecture are both fiendishly difficult. So in both cases, you can find related versions of the problem that are a little bit easier to solve in some way and, and tackle those instead. And that's happened for both of those problems. But the problems as they stand both remain unsolved. Um, one of the uh, things that I enjoyed about your book is it has a lot of mathematical history in it. And um, you mentioned a lot of the people who've done work in this area. One of them was uh, Sophie Germain. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Who was she and what are Germain Prime? Yeah, I was really happy to be able to talk about Germain because she's one of my mathematical heroes. So she was um, a mathematician in France. Um, way back in the 18th century at a time when it really wasn't socially acceptable kind of for women to, to study mathematics. So she really had to fight the, the society uh, prejudices in order to be able to study mathematics. And of course, she couldn't get a job in a university or anything like that. But she was really inspired by mathematics. She discovered a love of the subject when she was a child. And despite her parents' objections, kind of persisted in studying and she really worked in two main areas. Um, one of them was to do with uh, formulating a mathematical theory of elasticity, but the one that's relevant here was number theory, the study of whole numbers, where the twin primes conjecture and so on all fit in. And she devoted herself to studying number theory and reading the works of the, the great mathematicians. So she read this fantastic new textbook that the mathematician Gauss had just written. Gauss, one of the greatest number theorists of the time, and corresponding with Gauss and starting to have her own ideas for solving some of these problems. So she made a very significant contribution to the story of Fama's last theorem, which is perhaps one of the most famous stories in the whole history of mathematics, and famously a problem that was unsolved for centuries until it was dramatically solved in the 1990s. But she made very significant breakthroughs. And in the course of her work on that, focused on a particular type of prime that has the property that if you double that prime and add one, you get another prime. So, for example, 29 is a prime number. If I double it, I get 58. If I add one, then I get 59, which is also prime. So 29 is an example of a Germain prime. And these particular type of prime numbers became really important because of her work on Fermat's last theorem. It turned out they had this particular significance. And this is leads to another unsolved problem about prime numbers. So the prediction is that there should be infinitely many Germain primes. 
But again, we don't currently know how to solve that. This is another of these problems of the same sort of flavor as the Goldbach conjecture and the Twin Primes conjecture. They're all problems that somehow are about addition of prime numbers. And because prime numbers are defined in terms of factors and multiplying and stuff, it turns out the questions about adding prime numbers seem super difficult. That's a very intriguing way of categorizing it. I like that. Um, one of the things that you did is you mentioned the polymath collaboration, which we'll talk about. A I'm not sure whether it's a collaboration. Well, it is a collaboration, but it's interesting how mathematical research changed in the Internet era, because I noticed that in the 1990s, I was doing a lot of research by emailing my colleagues and it, things have speeded up even more by uh, even more through the use of. Uh, uh, you know, sort of the equivalent of uh, chat rooms for mathematicians. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, I'm in my early 30s, so I joined the world of mathematical research once the internet was up and running. So for me, reading stories of sort of great mathematicians of the past writing letters to each other and Hardy and Littlewood posting postcards to each other and so on, it's kind of intriguing because just the, the email has sped it up so much. But things like mathematicians blogging about their work. So some mathematicians will upload their, their paper, will send their paper off to the journal for peer review in the usual way, but will maybe also write a less formal blog post describing the key ideas in a way that's a bit more accessible, that makes it easier to reach out to the mathematical community. It can be hard even for mathematicians to know what other mathematicians are working on, and that kind of blogging is a great way to keep in touch with what's going on. Um, uh, yeah, I think... I'm yeah, I was just to say, the other thing is that um, nowadays mathematicians can upload draft papers to the internet. So the process of peer review for a journal, as you know, takes months and months. You, you send it off and then the journal kind of over a period of months sends it off to experts to check it through and referee it and decide whether it's going to be published. And then it sits in a queue to wait to be published. And then it finally appears in the, uh, the, the, the university library kind of years later sometimes. And being able to upload draft papers online straight away, get feedback on them straight away, but other people be able to start building on those ideas, I think also is really exciting for kind of accelerating what's going on. And that's happening in practically every area of knowledge nowadays, and I think it's a Yeah, great definitely. Thing. Yeah. One of the things that you discuss in your book is the idea of various different strategies for working on problems. And is there a general strategy for making hard problems easier, or is it just a bunch of collected ideas that you use when you... Yeah, I think it's a bunch of collected ideas. I and mean, when I was thinking about this in the book, I wanted to try to give a flavor of how people maybe make progress on a problem like the Twin Primes conjecture that just feels unmanageably impossible to most people. But nonetheless, you can make progress kind of chipping away. So maybe you don't manage to solve the whole problem, but by adapting it in some way, you find some kind of easier version of the problem that you can solve instead. So instead of asking for prime numbers, you can ask for numbers that just have one or two prime factors, for example. So kind of nearly prime, but not quite. And by relaxing those conditions, some techniques will work out that don't seem to work on the original problem. And it's not just kind of oh, you've solved an easier version of the problem. That that can be really helpful in trying to understand the core of what is the difficulty here. Uh, if I try out this technique, what kind of problems can I solve with it, what not? So although mathematicians get credit for these amazing breakthroughs, and Yutang Zhang is rightly celebrated for his kind of spectacular breakthrough on this problem, I think it's important as a community that we acknowledge all of these little incremental steps that are forwards that in due course may one day lead to something more spectacular. Well, I always like the fact that Newton said when asked how well he did is uh, why he did so well, he said, I stand on the shoulders of... Jim. That's right. But I think he was also standing on the shoulders of normal-sized people as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A friend of mine once said, if I, have, uh, I don't know where he got this quote from, but it quote revising Newton, he said, if I fail to see as far as others, it is because giants are standing on my shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Had to sneak that one in. Um, anyway, what is the weak Goldbach conjecture? So this is one of these kind of 
variations of the problem. So the Goldbach conjecture, this was this prediction that every even number bigger than four is a sum of two odd primes. The weak Goldbach conjecture is a kind of variation of that where you focus instead on odd numbers. And the prediction is that every odd number bigger than seven is a sum of three primes. So if the Goldbach conjecture is true, then the weak Goldbach conjecture is also true. Straight away, you get it for free. It's like buy one, get one free on mathematical theorems. So that's the sense in which it's the weak Goldbach conjecture. Unfortunately, proving the weak, weak Goldbach conjecture doesn't prove the, the full strength of the conjecture. But the thing about the weak Goldbach conjecture is we do now know it's true, which is fantastic. So um, the first half of the 20th century, a Russian mathematician called Vinogradov, building on work by others like like Hardy and Littlewood, managed to show that from some point on, every odd number is a sum of three primes. But that point was astronomically large. I mean, there's no way that you could check all of the odd numbers up to that point. So it was great to know from some point on that this theorem was true, but you kind of want it for all numbers. And then just in the last few years, a mathematician called Harold Helfgott, with help from a colleague called David Platt, managed to improve on the work of Vinogradov and also use some clever computational techniques to prove the full strength of the theorem. So, so we do know that every odd number bigger than seven is the sum of three primes. The Goldbach conjecture itself remains out of reach for now, but this is an example of that, finding a variation of the problem that you can solve. And it's fantastic that that kind of recent work has really finished off that problem now. Um, one of the things that you discuss are things called prime triples, which I hadn't seen before. What are they and what do we know? About yeah, so I, I, I guess the name prime triples is, is one that I made up. So for me, a prime triple is an example of three primes that where there's, the gaps are spacing by two. So like three, five, seven are all primes. The gap from three to five is two. The gap from five to seven is two. It's like two twin primes pairs of twin primes glued together in the middle. And the reason I wanted to include them in the book is that it turns out that they are much easier to understand than twin primes. And in fact, there is only one prime triple, namely that one three five seven that I've just given you. Um, <laughs> so I shouldn't have said prime Well, triples. exactly, yeah. I mean, it's a sort of hypothetical idea, and in fact, there's only one of them. So it, it's a very different scenario from the twin primes. And it, for me, it's fascinating that I can say confidently that there's just one prime triple, namely 357, but twin primes seem so much harder. There's that kind of, uh, you only have to change the problem slightly to make it much harder. So the, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, the reason we know that there's just one prime triple is that if you take that kind of configuration of number, gap of two, number, gap of two, number, you're always going to get a multiple of three, it turns out. I won't kind of go into the details right now, but yeah. <laughs> it's a bit easier in a book when you can set it all out on a page. But one sure. of those numbers always has to be a multiple of three. And because three is the only prime multiple of three, that tells us that three would have to be part of that triple. And that's what kind of narrows down the possibilities. Got it. Um, what is the green tau theorem and why is it significant? So it, this is related to the prime triples in a way. So it's thinking about groups of primes that are evenly spaced. So three, five, seven are three primes that are evenly spaced. And if you don't insist on the gap being two, you allow different spacings. You can find more examples. So like if I start at five, I can go five, 11, 17, 23, 29. Those are all primes. The gap is six each time. So that's five evenly spaced prime numbers. So you can ask, could I find a hundred evenly spaced prime numbers or a thousand or a million evenly spaced prime numbers? It's looking for that structure within the prime numbers. The prime numbers seem quite kind of random and scattered and it's quite hard to understand what's going on. And looking for these evenly spaced primes is one way of accessing, trying to understand the structure that's going on. So what Ben Green and Terry Tao managed to prove um, within the last few years was that there are a hundred evenly spaced prime numbers. There are a million evenly spaced numbers. There are as many as you like evenly spaced prime numbers. So their argument doesn't tell you how to find them. And in fact, we don't have an example of a hundred evenly spaced prime numbers yet. The prime numbers involved would have to be huge. But their theorem tells us with certainty that those hundred evenly spaced prime numbers must exist. And 
their proof suddenly opened up this kind of world of new techniques, new ways of understanding the prime numbers. So it, it's important as a theorem for what it tells us, but also because the proof gives us new insights into how prime numbers work. Um, now, in your book, you start getting into more, uh, I won't say deeper ideas, but things that require a little, that are a little more sophisticated. And I started seeing them when you discussed the idea of punch cards, admissible sets, and prime witnesses. Could you describe these for our listeners? Yes, you're right. It starts getting a little bit more technical at this point, but hopefully not too much so. So, um... The way that Zhang went about doing his work, building on work of Goldstone, Pitts and Yildirim and, and many others beforehand, was not to focus on looking for pairs of primes that differ by two, but to focus on looking for kind of patterns of primes. Uh, so if you imagine an old-fashioned computer punch card, so like a strip of card with little slots cut in it, you can kind of slide along the number line, and you can see numbers through these holes. Um, the goal is somehow to make all of the numbers that you can see simultaneously prime. So you could imagine a punch card for the twin primes problem would just have two slots with a gap of two between them, and as you slide it along, you kind of see, oh, look, here are three and five, these are twin primes, or here are five and seven, these are twin primes. And the goal is to have all of those numbers that you can see being prime. But you can have other patterns of punch card as well. So, for example, you could have a punch card for the prime triples problem. So you'd have three slits with gaps of two. And you discover as you slide it along that when you look at three, five, and seven, they're all prime. But then as you keep sliding it along the number line, it seems problematic. You don't get all of the numbers that you can see being prime again. And that's because one of them is always a multiple of three. So somehow what this punch card is doing is helping us to kind of understand the limitations on this. So, so a prime witness is kind of illustrating that that prime that punch card is bad. So the prime triples punch card is bad because of the prime three, because one of the visible numbers is always a multiple of three. And you can generalize that idea. And, and I went into a bit more detail in the book. I don't think I will right now. But what Zhang did, as I say, building on ideas from, from previous mathematicians, was to show that if you have a well-behaved punch card, so a good one like the twin primes one, not a bad one like uh, the prime triples one and it has enough holes in it then as you slide it along the number line at least two of the visible numbers will be prime we can't guarantee that all of them are prime we think they are but that that's too hard to prove at the moment but at least two of the visible numbers will be prime and that's how he managed to prove his theorem that there are infinitely many pairs of primes where the gap is less than or equal to 70 million so i hope that gives just a little flavor of some of the ideas that that, that are going on behind the scenes there well, I hope what it does is it not only gives the flavor, but it entices people to look at your book, which I found extremely enjoyable. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, we've sort of alluded to this before, but what is the twin prime constant? So this is to do with uh, trying to count how many pairs of twin primes there are up to any given point. So... Uh, one way that we can kind of think about the twin primes conjecture is to use a computer to count the number of pairs of twin primes up to a million or a billion or something. And that's never going to prove the twin primes conjecture for us. But at the same time that we can use a computer to count the real data, we can also do a kind of mathematical model. And there's a particular way of predicting how many pairs of twin primes there might be up to a particular point. And by comparing with the computer data, that suggests that the model is extremely accurate. We can't uh, prove that it's correct, but it's encouraging that that model seems to have matching the data. So the twin primes constant is related to this prediction of how many pairs of twin primes there are up to a million or a billion. And so it comes out of this uh, model that we have for the primes using kind of tools from probability. So it's a really lovely idea. And the fact that it fits the data so well is really tantalizing because somehow it must be correct. But right now we can't prove it. Well, no matter how far there, uh, <laughs> uh, no matter how far you go out with your computer models, it's still a long way to exactly. <laughs> um, what number tracks the progress of the twin prime conjecture? Is this it? No. So this is the the um, 
like the, the the progress of the recent work. So Zhang proved that there are infinitely many pairs of primes where the gap is less than or equal to 70 million. So that's like the number that Zhang could get. We're aiming for the number two. And then over the years after, or in fact, just the months after Zhang put his work out, other mathematicians were doing this collective polymath collaboration um, using blogs, using wikis. And there was this kind of league table of... Zhang's got 70 million, here's what I can get. And that number just kept falling and falling just within weeks after Zhang made his announcement. Polymath was kind of showing, well, so somebody would come along and write in the league table, well, I can show there are infinitely many pairs of primes that differ by at most this number. This is like the number tracking the progress. And then other mathematicians would come along and check and go, yep, that looks great, or I don't understand this bit, or I'm a bit concerned about this argument not being quite correct, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so that, that number was kind of falling and falling. So by um, just a few months after Zhang's work came out, the Polymath Project had managed to prove that there are infinitely many pairs of primes that differ by at most 4,680, which is fantastic progress. I mean, such a big drop from 70 million. And mostly when you're working on a, math, uh, a mathematical problem, it's really hard to tell whether you're making progress. It's def even harder for somebody watching to tell whether you're making progress. And so one of the unusual features of this problem is that there is this kind of number that you can use to have a little bit of a sense of closing the gap of making progress. Okay, well, you know I got to ask this. Where is it now? Well, so uh, after Polymath got it down to 4,680, uh, a young British mathematician called James Maynard came along a few months later and managed to bring it down to 600, which was fantastic because Polymath had kind of got stuck. Um, James Maynard had some new ideas. In fact, Terence Tao, another mathematician, had similar ideas around the same time but didn't get quite such a good numerical bound. So James Maynard got it down to 600, and then the Polymath Project resumed, building on their previous work on Zhang's work and on Maynard and Tao's ideas. Uh, and they brought it down to 246. So there are infinitely many pairs of primes that differ by at most 246. And to the best of my knowledge, that's the state of the art, although, of course, that might change any minute. So writing this book was a kind of nerve-wracking experience. Yeah, um, you know, it's sort of interesting because I've experienced the same thing in mathematical research in different areas. And it reminds me that um, there's a theory of evolution called punctuated equilibrium, in which basically says that uh, uh, you evolve at a relatively fast rate, then you hit stasis for a while, then progress is made on the evolutionary front. And it seems like that's the way it is with virtually all fields of knowledge. If you look at practically anything, physics, chemistry, mathematics happens there and we see it so dramatically and quantified so exactly with the twin primes. Yeah, that's right. And it, you're right. It's fascinating about how it kind of comes and goes. And yeah. What is the parity problem? So the, the techniques that have been used on the twin primes conjecture in this recent work come from an area called sieve theory. Um, which is a particular kind of way of, of picking out these prime patterns. And the parity problem is a kind of obstacle to that method that's been known to exist for a long time. So uh, Selberg was one of the people who really pioneered this area, and he was already started to identify this problem. It's because the, the, the SIF techniques are not very good at distinguishing numbers depending on whether they have an odd or even number of prime factors. So it's just not quite good enough of fine detail picking out the primes. It's just a little bit too crude. So the parity problem suggests that the sieve theory techniques would get stuck at the number six. So trying to get the full strength of the twin primes conjecture with gaps of two feels like it's too ambitious for sieve theory, at least as we understand it at the moment. It seems like the parity problem is going to be a barrier to that line of attack. We still haven't got all the way down to six, right? So there's still some way to go before we hit that barrier. But it suggests that there's going to need to be some fairly serious new ideas in order to, to completely solve the Twin Primes conjecture. Um, what was your hexagonal mathematical pencil that you illustrated in the book? And what did it tell you about? Oh, yeah, I love this pencil. So uh, yeah. uh, uh, someone called Paul Stevenson, who runs a, a kind of roadshow going into schools doing maths with young people, gave me this pencil one day and said, oh, Vicky, I think you'll like like this pencil and I sort of peered at it and thought what's the deal with this pencil 
and it, it's hexagonal as you say so it's got kind of six sides to it like many pencils do and it's got written on it numbers that spiral round so it goes one two three four five six and because of the spiral then seven lands up back next to one and so on and it keeps spiraling round and what Paul did when he created this pencil was the numbers are black except that the prime numbers are highlighted in red so they stand out really well and what we see on this pencil is that some sides of the pencil don't seem to contain any prime numbers at all. Um, some sides of the pencil just have one prime number, and some sides of the pencil have many prime numbers. And so there are lots of questions that you're kind of prompted to ask based on looking at this pencil. It, the pencil has only got the numbers up to 100, so you kind of think, well, when I haven't seen any primes on this particular side of the pencil, is that going to continue no matter how long my pencil is, or is that just a feature of the primes up to 100? And so you you know, kind of think about it a little bit. And it turns out what this pencil is somehow encapsulating is that apart from the primes two and three, which are special cases, every prime number in the world is one less than a multiple of six or one more than a multiple of six. It's a really cute fact. It's just beautiful. And that's that's a fabulously entertaining fact. And I yeah, it's know. such a great fact. It just has that kind of quality of making you smile. I'm smiling just thinking about it. <laughs> And then you you can ask these kind of questions about how these primes are distributed and what if my pencil had a different number of sides? These are the kind of questions that as mathematicians we like to ask, right? What if what if I had a pencil with seven sides or 101 sides or a million and one sides? How, how would the primes be distributed? And that leads on to some really interesting mathematics. So a mathematician called Dirichlet proved a theorem that's about the distribution of these primes. So apart from two and three, every prime is one more than a multiple of six or one less than a multiple of six. And we know there are infinitely many primes. And what we learn from Dirichlet's theorem is that there are infinitely many of each of those two types. So there are infinitely many primes that are one less than a multiple of six and infinitely many primes that are one more than a multiple of six. And also, he explains how to generalize that for pencils with any number of sides you like, which which sides of the pencil have many primes and showing that they have infinitely many primes. And then the reason that I really wanted to tell this story for the book is because there's a key conjecture related to the twin primes conjecture called the Elliott Halberstam conjecture, which is a more specific prediction that somehow the primes are kind of evenly distributed between these sides. They're about the same number that are one more than a multiple of six and one less than a multiple of six up to any particular point and generalizing that for other types of pencil as well. So the Elliott Halberstam conjecture seems unbelievably difficult. I don't think anybody knows how to prove it or even really to attack it at the moment. But if we knew the Elliott Halberstam conjecture, we'd be able to prove more than we can currently prove about the twin primes conjecture. So a relatively simple pencil and a very cute fact about prime numbers turns out to lead on into some really, really deep mathematics. You know, it's funny, but I'm hearing echoes of what happened when Andrew Wiles proved, uh, proved Fermat's last theorem because he didn't actually prove Fermat's last theorem directly. He proved a more sophisticated theorem from algebraic geometry, as I recall. And uh, it sounds like the same type of thing here to a certain Yeah, that's extent. right. I'm, I'm privileged to Andrew is one of my colleagues. I work in the Andrew Wiles building, the, the home of the Oxford Mathematical Institute. And um, you're right. So he proved this more general conjecture that somebody else had already established would prove Fermat's last theorem. And I think this is often what happens in mathematics. So, so isolating that the Elliott Halberstam conjecture is somehow at the heart of what's going on with the twin primes conjecture feels a little bit like you're sort of delegating the work to somebody else. But it's a really good way of homing in on what's the important thing here. What do we need to focus our energies on? What is the difficult bit of this problem? Um, one of the things that I liked about your book was that there are some things in it that are just sort of uh, – I, if I knew what the word picaresque meant, I'd use that. Um, but, for instance, that the fact that every square is either a multiple of 8 or one more than a multiple of 8 or four more than a multiple of 8, it's like every prime is one less than a multiple of 6 or more than a, one more than a multiple of 6. And these are, for someone who's not a number theorist like myself, um, the, it, it, I won't say that they made me smile when I read them, but I certainly grinned a little. <laughs> yeah, there are these kind of surprising things 
things. One of the things that I love about mathematics is the surprises when things don't necessarily turn out exactly as you imagine. And this this fact that you highlight about the squares turns out to be enormously helpful. So um, I think it's a, a favourite fact for number theorists about how the squares behave when you kind of divide them by eight, what the remainders can be. It's something I often discuss with students because it's it's a relatively accessible fact. You don't have to have done a degree in mathematics to be able to access it, but it turns out to be really powerful. You know, one of the things about your book that I also liked is that numbers are the first things about mathematics that we all learn. And numbers have appealed to a whole lot of people. Um, and last year, you may recall, uh, you may recall there was a movie about Ramanujan. Um, and, uh, I thought that, I thought that people, more people should be seeing that movie. And, uh, I thought that if you could make, um, because you're a Brit, um, you could make a few remarks about Hardy and his relationship with Ramanujan and how this furthered mathematical research. I think it's a fascinating story and it has a lot of the elements of the current quest for the twin primes conjecture that you know, these stories occur over and over again. Yeah, so I, uh, as a number theorist, of course, Hardy and Ramanujan are mathematical heroes of mine. And I was very privileged to be a student at Trinity College in Cambridge, where Hardy worked for much of his career when he wasn't working in Oxford, and where Ramanujan uh, was when he came over from India to the UK. Hardy brought him over to, to Trinity. So as a Trinity mathematician in my past, I feel this sort of pride in their story. And it is an extraordinary story. Hardy described it as the one romantic incident of his life, this Indian mathematician coming from nowhere and just having the most extraordinary visions almost for solving mathematical problems, for the kind of creativity and the, the ideas that he had as a totally different perspective from Hardy. And Hardy and Ramanujan and Littlewood, who doesn't get so much of a, a role in the film, but was very much part of that, that that kind of mathematical circle, did so much to revolutionize the study of this area of additive number theory, of problems about adding whole numbers. Um, that the, the field is really as it is now, in part because of their contributions. And yeah, you're right, Ramanujan has this kind of coming out of nowhere quality about him, as uh, in, in, there are parallels with his work on the Twin Primes conjecture. You know, there's a uh, um, there's a story that I like to tell my students about Hardy. Hardy wrote a mathematician's apology, which I suspect that you've I love that read. Book. Yeah. And, I, and I tell my my students for the most part are, you know, they're more practical nowadays and they wonder what's the use of mathematical research, which is, after all, a subtext of your book. And I always tell them this story and I'd sort of like your uh, uh, your feeling about it. Um, Hardy wrote a mathematician's apology, which basically was saying to the world that I know that I'm a mathematician. I've looked at things involving patterns of numbers. I know they're totally useless, but um, to me, there's beauty in pattern. And if you appreciate an artist for the what he sees in the beauty involving the various visual arts, you should certainly accord the same respect to mathematicians, even though I know that what I've been doing would be viewed by most people as a waste of time. And um, he wrote the book, I read a mathematician's apology in the early 1970s. And a few years later, um, you may remember the construction of the RSA yeah. algorithm, which um, basically deals with some of the problems that Hardy was looking at, the difficulty of factoring numbers. And now Hardy, if he came back today, would be absolutely stunned to know that the problems that he were looking at underlie the security of every single password that we use in our daily lives. It's just, it's such, I always think this is such a wonderful story about how you do mathematical research because you're intrigued, you love it, you don't know where it's going, it may not go anywhere, and all of a sudden it turns out to be fundamental. Yeah, that's right. It, it, Hardy, I think, almost took a pride in the fact that his work had no practice practical application and he was writing uh, in having experienced kind of the world at war and he really didn't like the idea that his work might be uh, helpful for war and all yeah there's the, there's a whole kind of cultural thing going on there I think in that historical context but 
the I think the analogy with art is really powerful. And mathematicians, especially on the pure side, do mathematics sort of because they have to, because they're intrigued and they're curious and they're fascinated and they just want to understand what's going on. And my experience of working with young people is that they can have that same experience. It may not be what they decide they want to devote their lives to, but everybody can be excited and intrigued and inspired about prime numbers just as prime numbers. They do also, as you say, have these kind of unexpected applications in cryptography. And I love this RSA example because it builds on work that goes right back to Fermat in the 17th century. And Fermat was not imagining that our modern internet cryptography was going to be reliant on the mathematics of prime numbers. He just studied prime numbers because he was fascinated. And hundreds of years later, it turned out that it had this practical application. So when people ask me, well, what's the application of the term primes conjecture? I don't feel embarrassed in saying, I don't know that there is one. The people who are working on this are working on it because understanding prime numbers is part of this bigger goal of making sense of the world, of making sense of mathematics. And perhaps the twin primes conjecture will happen, have an application in the future. Maybe more probably the kinds of tools that people are developing to understand the twin primes conjecture may lead on to something in the future. As with Fermat's last theorem, the importance isn't just the theorem itself. It's not just knowing the answer to a particular problem. It's the strategies that you have for solving the problem that then give you access to other things. So I, I hope that other people can see the fascination of the twin primes conjecture, if they, even if they wouldn't necessarily feel they wanted to devote several years of their life to try to prove it. Well, I have to say that one of the things that I think your book does admirably is it not only explains what the problem is and how work on it has proceeded, it, you know, you can feel as you read it the fascination that people experience when we look at these things. And that's, of course, one of the reasons that that we write books like this in the hopes of sharing that fascination with others. That's right. I, I would just love other people to have at least a glimpse of what this world is about and I hope that perhaps some of the the people who read it will be inspired to go and maybe study further in the future um, and hopefully be as Vicky, I'm sure there will be. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, Let me ask you a couple of questions to wrap up the interview. First, um, how can our listeners or readers get in touch with you? Yes, if you you type my name into uh, your favorite search engine, you can find there's a contact form for me on the the Oxfam Department website. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, And in fact, there's a nice link with Hardy and Ramanujan here because my Twitter username, I'm at Vicky, V-I-C-K-Y Maths, I'm a Brit, M-A-T-H-S 1729 and that's because the number 1729 is a favourite amongst number theorists. There's this story that when Ramanujan was very seriously uh, unwell and was in a nursing home Hardy went and visited him and I'm not sure Hardy was very good at small talk and so I was looking for something to say and said, oh, yes uh, the, the taxi I came in today had the number 1,729, which didn't seem a very interesting number to me. I hope that's not a a bad omen for our work together today. And quick as a flash, Ramanujan said, oh, no, no, Hardy, 1,729 is a very interesting number. It's the smallest number that can be written as a sum of two cubes in two different ways. So that's why I went for VickyMaths1729 as my Twitty username. Well, I've got a story related to that. In the early 1960s, I learned about that story, and I asked a friend of mine, what's the smallest number that can be represented as the sum of two fourth powers? So what he did was he got on, uh, he managed to commandeer a computer, and after about 20 hours of computer time, which I don't know how he budgeted back in those days, he found the smallest number that was the sum of two fourth powers. And so I asked him, okay, what's the smallest number that's the sum of two fifth powers? He got on the computer. Round out 100, hour, 100 hours, got nowhere. Turns out that's an unsolved problem. Maybe yeah. some of the listeners will work. <laughs> yeah, that's the fascination of the number thing. You make a small change and the problem gets so much harder. <laughs> it does indeed. Um, Vicky, what projects do you have for the future? So at the moment, I'm, I'm obviously I'm teaching undergraduates and I, I work on various kind of projects for, for public communication. So I'm working with school 
students. We have a summer program in Oxford called Promise Europe for super keen maths students from across Europe who come and uh, spend six weeks with us doing number theory in the summer. And yeah, thinking about ideas for a future book, maybe. Okay, Vicky, I wish you all the best of success in the future and a happy holiday season. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure talking to you.